Luke chapter 2, or pardon me, Ruth chapter 2. We're in Ruke 2. Ruke. Catch my breath, that's right. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more, and the morning eternal, bright, and fair. When the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore, and the roll is On that bright and cloudless morning when the dead in Christ shall rise and the glory of his resurrection share, when his chosen ones shall gather to their home beyond the skies and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, when the roll is called up yonder, when the Chapter 2, in verse number 1. And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth, of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabitess, said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. I like that. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. You see what the inspired narrator is doing here? He's just dropping these little hints here and there just for us to remember. Okay, uh, Here's this kinsman, Elimelech, who was related to Naomi or this kinsman Boaz related to Elimelech and Naomi. And uh, I, this is what my mind does as I see this. I'm just wanting to step into the story and say, oh, Ruth, it's going to get really good. Okay. Of course, she knows that very well by now, doesn't she? Verse number four. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said unto the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless thee. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, It is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little. In the house. Now, this evening I'd like to preach a message entitled Finding Grace. Let's pray. Father, we need your help and a reminder from this Old Testament passage of Scripture written for our learning and an example to us of not only the necessity but the blessing of finding grace. I thank you that as Ruth found grace in the eyes of her kinsman redeemer Boaz. 
I thank you that it's a tremendous blessing, an overwhelming blessing for us to find grace in the eyes of our kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus. I ask for your help as we consider uh, some truths from this passage, some principles, and the Lord, some uh, actions that we can make a part of our life that will uh, help us to have some gracious haps, as Ruth did. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Over the next several Sunday nights, uh, we're going to talk about the subject of finding grace and how that is uh, illustrated in Ruth's life. Tonight, we're going to consider her hap. Next Sunday night, Lord willing, we're going to look at Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, her help. And then we're also going to uh, preach a message on Ruth's heart. And then finally, towards the end of the chapter, we're going to look at her hope as she sought for grace. And I have often thought in my mind those last few verses of chapter number 2, uh, beginning in verse number 22, and there verse number 23, when uh, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good for thee, that's actually, it is good for thee uh, that, uh, that you stay in Boaz's field, and you're not, you're not found in any other field. And I can almost imagine after Naomi has heard who it was that had showed this great grace in Ruth's life that Naomi begins to have this visual imaging display of family tree pop up in her mind. And she begins to put pieces together. And uh, she tells Ruth, I want to seek rest for you. We'll see that in chapter number three. We've given the theme to the book as we've studied it, uh, this theme, look what grace can do. And that was the title of the first message. The second message focused on uh, Naomi's battle with bitterness. And we talked about the importance of an ounce of prevention when it comes to forgiveness and trust that helps to keep us from bitterness. And then a third message we titled, Avoid It Like the Plague. Because of the destructive power of bitterness, its deceptiveness, we want to avoid it like the plague. The fourth message in that first chapter is we talked about what grace can do. We talked about the hidden hand of God and the subject of providence. I like what one preacher said. I want to read you this, or this statement. He defined the providence of God. He said, providence is the hand of God in the glove of history. It is the work of God whereby he integrates and blends events in the universe in order to fulfill his original design for which it was created. By the way, God's working everything back to that point when he will make all things new. Okay. And restore, and not only restore the original Edenic state, but I believe it will be even better. Okay. That's the grace of God, by the way. He goes on to say this, providence is God sitting behind the steering wheel of time. Providence refers to God's governance of all events so as to direct them toward an end. It is God taking what you and I would call luck, chance, mistakes, happenstance, and stitching them into the achieving of his program. The providence of God. And so we talked about the hidden hand of God. And then the uh, fifth message that we considered in chapter number one was the importance of coming home and how Naomi and Ruth came home. And then we focused on Ruth 
and her encouragement to Naomi. And we'll talk a little bit more about that this evening as well. But we preached a message entitled, Bearing the Burden of Bitterness. And how someone like Ruth could help Naomi as she worked through her bitterness some key Bible principles for how we can interact with loved ones who battle with bitterness, who are battling with it. And then last Sunday night, we looked at Ruth's great confession of faith and loyalty, and we titled that message, Christian Commitment. As we consider where we are in these first seven verses of chapter 2, think about the scenes that we've passed in the narrative thus far. We began in Moab, and then from Moab we saw the dialogue between Naomi and Ruth and Orpah on the way from Moab back to Bethlehem, Judah, when Naomi had heard that God had visited his people and had restored bread. And then there's that initial homecoming scene at Bethlehem. And then here, in the first few verses of Ruth chapter number 2, we're assuming that it was in the house where they realized somebody's got to go get us something to eat. And then Ruth, in obedience to the directive and the provision of God in Deuteronomy and in Leviticus, asks for Naomi's permission to go to a field to find grace and glean. It's significant to me as I think about this field. And by the way, if you go to Bethlehem today, though I've never been there, I've been in the vicinity, uh, they have pinpointed where they believe Boaz's field may well have been. And it's interesting to think about the significance of a field on the outskirts of a little town as it relates to redemptive history. How God wove the scarlet thread of redemption through a field outside of Bethlehem. The phrase I want us to consider this evening in particular is in verse number 3. And she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers and her hap. How many of you used that word this past week? Her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And this is significant, too, because, you know, I'm from the Midwest, and you fly an airplane over the Midwest. How many have done this before? It looks like a patchwork quilt. The boundaries are neatly and clearly outlined. You can see that. It looks like a big patchwork quilt. It wasn't that way in the Mideast at this time, in the what would have been around the 11th century B.C. It wasn't. The fields were marked by cornerstone landmarks and then an imaginary line in between. And so that's why the Bible uses the term here that she lighted upon this part of a field belonging unto Boaz. And by the way, that's why it's so significant that the Bible warns about moving a landmark. Because you move a landmark as important as it was, and you're cutting into someone else's life, someone else's property. And that's why the Bible said, remove not those ancient landmarks which your fathers have set. The importance of marking those things. But her hap was to light on this portion of the field belonging to Boaz. We mentioned this in the very first message as we talk about the subject of the providence of God and how two of the most amazing books in all the Bible as it relates to the subject of providence and God guiding in circumstances and working with his hidden hand, if you would, behind the scenes. Two of the best books for that in all the Bible are the two books of the Bible named for women, Esther and Ruth. One of the best messages that I ever heard on the subject of the providence of God was in Bible College Chapel. 
from Esther chapter number 6 and verse number 1. And the preacher went to that passage of scripture and he read how on that night the king could not sleep. And he commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles and they were read before the king. He was having trouble going to sleep and he thought he would just read some old daily records of happenings in the kingdom and it would bore him back to sleep. And yet in the providence of God, in a book where God's name is not mentioned one time, it becomes clear that God's hidden hand is working and even as Haman was conspiring to destroy the Jews, God stole the king's sleep so that he would wake up. And then in the providence of God, the very scroll with that particular section of the Chronicles that harked back a couple of years before, apparently, when these two stewards had sought to take away the king's life and how Mordecai had found out about it and had alerted the king and his people. And what ended up happening is those men were put to death and the king's life was spared and the king wanted to know what was ever done for Mordecai and God weaving those events even as Haman's schemes and I I hope there's a replay of Haman coming into the court the next morning don't you coming in and the king wants to know who's in the court because he wants to do something to honor Mordecai Who's out there? And here's Haman waiting to get his gallows approved to hang Mordecai. And the king says, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks, oh, man, he should be arrayed in one of the king's garments and put on one of the king's uh, horses and paraded through the streets. And it should be shouted before him, this will be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And the king said, that's a great idea. Do that for Mordecai and you lead the animal. And there begin the unraveling, all because on that night. In this situation, it was Ruth's hap. The word hap, by definition, speaks of something that occurs without human planning or intervention. This fascinated me as I prepared for this evening. The biggest concentration of the use of this word that's translated hap The Hebrew word that's translated hap, the biggest concentration of this word is in the book of Ecclesiastes used by King Solomon. Three times our King James Version translators uh, translated it with the word event, talking about an event that happens to all. One time they translated it with the verb happeneth, and three times they translated it with the verb befalleth, something that just happens And from a human perspective, it's that which occurs without human planning or intervention. But I like what one commentator said. And by the way, I like what the old country preacher said years ago. He said, boy, the Bible sure do shed a lot of light on them there commentaries. And I get that. And I'll just, let me just tell you, just a little inside information, transparency here. I use commentaries every week, but I use them in the second half of my study. Uh, I use them after I've dug into the grammar and the the syntax and looked for meaning and all of those different aspects and after been praying about it. And then in the last half of study, I'll research commentaries. Let me tell you one of the reasons that I do. Because there's a lot that I don't know. Some of you are saying, yeah, we know that preacher. 
Let me tell you this, too. These commentaries that I have, these were men who knew the Lord, men who sought to study the Scripture, men, get this, men who were filled with the Spirit of God. And, and God, in the Spirit, God through His Spirit, will show those men things that we can glean from years after they lived. Okay, So there's a legitimate place for commentaries. And I like what one man said. He said this, By excessively attributing Ruth's good fortune to chance, okay, he's talking from the human perspective, the phrase, her hap, points ironically to the exact opposite, namely the sovereignty of God. In other words, from a human perspective, saying this was her hap, anybody who knows God, knows the Bible, understands that this was the sovereign hand of God working behind the scenes. To get this, to weave the scarlet thread of redemption through a field on the outskirts of, of Bethlehem in bringing together Boaz and a Moabite widow in God's plan to continue the seed line of Messiah. And so when you... Fit God or put God in the pictures, it relates to this word hap. We could say it this way. Haps are the inevitable, though sometimes unexpected, working of God in a human's life. They're inevitable. In other words, this is how God works. And it might be unexpected from the human perspective, but this is how God works and so the wonder is, and I'm glad we sang the song, The Wonder of It All. The wonder then is this, and I want us, this is where I want us to center our thoughts this evening. God is looking to dispense or to pour out His grace through the haps of life. He's seeking to do so for those who are looking to find His grace. Ruth went looking for grace. She was looking to find grace, and it was in her search for grace that God led her to a hap. I think about James chapter number four. It is those who humble themselves that access the grace of God. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. And both in the book of James and in 1 Peter, the command to humble is to humble yourselves. My dad often used to say this, you humble yourself, God humiliates. If you bow up in pride, then that's how God works. But our responsibility is to humble ourselves. I think about Psalm chapter number 84. The Lord God is a sun and shield. He will give what? Grace and glory to them that do what? Walk uprightly. Okay. He will give grace and glory to them that walk uprightly. So I want us to just consider this evening that these grace haps, though they seem like chance from a human perspective, they're not from God's perspective. And there are what we can, if we can use the term activators in our lives, conscious decisions and attitude and action that can I say this, will weave us or lead us or bring us into contact with God's gracious haps.
Does that make sense to you? Okay. What are some of these actions as we see them modeled in Ruth's life? The first is this, is that Ruth lived for others. Do you want some gracious haps to happen in your lives? They won't happen if you're living for yourself. But if we're living for others, then these gracious haps will take place in our lives. I think about Ruth's submission to Naomi. As you look at the text of Scripture, she says to her in verse number 2, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. She's submitted. She's viewing Naomi as authority. She's submitting to Naomi's authority. Let me just tell you this. Listen, listen. People that are not in submission to God's authorities in their life, they are going to miss a lot of outpouring of God's grace. And so here, she's living for others. She's not thinking about herself. She's seeking to encourage Naomi. Uh, Several of the authors that I read and have been reading on the book of Ruth have implied that uh, from some of the things that Naomi says in her interaction that it's very possible when she first heard that bread had been restored, that there was an initial excitement and an eagerness to get home. But as she got on the way home and even after she got back to Bethlehem, the reality of what it would mean for them as destitute widows to actually survive really set in on her and may well have discouraged her. But Ruth took the initiative in living not for herself, but living for the Lord and living for Naomi as well. And she volunteered to be the one who would be the human instrument for provision or the breadwinner. I appreciate this too about Ruth, is that she was loving in her interactions with Naomi, even when Naomi, with Ruth standing right there by her side, said, I went out full and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. And we talked about that. What a slight that was to Ruth. Ruth, who in chapter number four, the women of Bethlehem are going to say, she's better to you than seven sons. And yet we see no hint of Ruth getting bitter, upset, She just continued to forgive and to love. And so it really really set her up, if you would, to have this gracious hap in the field. I want you to notice a second activator in Ruth's life that put her in the place of this gracious happening. And that is this, she was looking for grace. You say... Pastor, that's exactly what the text says. You're not telling us anything new. Think about it this way. She brought herself into the place of gracious happening because she was looking for grace. Think about this. Verse number two. Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. Notice what she didn't say. She didn't say, I'm going looking for justice. I'm going looking for fairness. I appreciate what I've heard someone say in the last few years. People that say, life's not fair. No, life's more than fair. 
even for those who go through difficult times, anything this side of hell is mercy and grace. Okay. But notice Ruth was looking for grace. She's looking for that abundant, undeserved, customized, supernatural supply. Let me, let me just say this about grace. Grace, the grace of God, is going to be more focused on meeting your need, not giving you your wants. God knows far more what we need than we do. And so she went looking for grace, not justice. She went looking for grace, not entitlement. Not a handout. Let me just say this. The grace of God is not a Christian welfare system. We're not talking about earning grace or work salvation or anything. We're talking about, in obedience to the word of God, humbling yourself and bringing yourself, me bringing myself into a place where the grace of God is poured out. Okay. The Bible says here she was gone or she went looking for grace, not justice, not entitlement, not a handout. The Bible does not say here that she went looking for sympathy. It doesn't say that she went looking for a husband. Why grace? Even though God had given commands in Leviticus 19 and in Deuteronomy about the care of the widows and the poor and the stranger, even though commanded, remember, what time in Israel's history was this? this were the day, these were the days when who ruled? The judges. It's a time when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There were plenty of people in that day who, even though God had said it in his word, they may not have been minded to make a place for a poor Moabite widow to glean. And she understood the need of grace. And so these grace hap activators, living for others, looking for the grace of God, thirdly, leaning on the word of God. Leviticus chapter 19 and verse number 9, Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse number 19, the scriptures through Moses, God gave command that when they harvested their fields, they were not to pick up everything, but they were to leave the gleanings for those who were poor, those who were strangers, those who were widows. And then in Deuteronomy, Moses included also those who were fatherless. Ruth qualified on the three accounts of being a poor widow who was a stranger. Notice, if you would, verse number 10, when she gets there and Boaz begins to pour out his grace, verse number 10, then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the field and said unto him, why have I found, what's the word? Grace in thine eyes. That thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a what? Stranger. Okay. A Moabite. And you noticed up in verse number Two, and also in verse number 6, her nationality was no um, unknown commodity. She was known as Ruth the Moabitess. 
But she knew enough to know that God had made provision. And so what does she do? She leans on the word of God. She trusted in what God had provided. She trusted in what God had said. And by faith, walked out of Bethlehem into the fields. One of the authors I read said this. He said he could imagine the angels in heaven watching over the banister, kind of willing her towards Boaz field. And yet how wonderful it is that God works in the way that he does and in a heart to direct like he did. But you know, Ruth had to embrace or acknowledge her identity. Poor, widow, and a foreigner. And I love what she says in verse number 10. The idea when she says, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? I remember reading this years ago that the, the idea here is this, is that she's saying to him, why are you treating me like one of your own? You're taking knowledge of me as if I were a Jewish woman, even though I'm not. Folks, think about the application of that in our lives. Ephesians chapter 2, you and I are called children of disobedience before Christ, children of wrath, children of the devil, aliens from the people of God. And before we can have grace, we have to acknowledge that's what I am. And if I refuse to acknowledge what God says about me as a sinner, separated from God, a child of wrath, a child of disobedience, if a person refuses to acknowledge that, they are going to stop the outpouring of the grace of God in their life. So Ruth leans on the word of God. And she acknowledges her identity and it helps pour out the flow of grace. Fourthly and finally, as we think about these activators that help with these gracious happenings in our lives, living for others, looking for the grace of God. Let me just, how many of you need grace? We need the grace of God. Okay. You don't earn it, but we humble ourselves. We live for others. We look for grace. We lean on the word. And fourthly, I think it's important from Ruth's example to labor in what we know we're supposed to be doing. Okay. Ruth didn't go to the edge of the field and just sit down and wait for a handout. Look what she does. She knows what God has provided and said in his word. In faith in what God has said in his word, she takes conscious steps of faith out of the city of Bethlehem to this field. And as an honor to that, the Lord is bringing about this gracious hap. Notice, if you would, uh, verse number 5. Then said Boaz unto his servant that was set over the reapers, Whose damsel is this? Let me just take a, chase a little rabbit trail here, okay? Boaz is likely an older man. We're going to see next week that he is a man of profound integrity. Do you know what struck me about him? And this is maybe a whole message. 
The first question he asks, whose damsel is this? Who does she belong to? Folks, that has profound ramifications for us, especially you dads of daughters. Let me tell any young man in this room, the first question you need to ask if your eye is caught by some young woman is who does she belong to? Any pathway into a girl's life that bypasses her authority is a wrong path. Okay. Now, that's not the message tonight, but I'm just saying this, okay? <laughs> we were talking last week. We were talking last week about this. And, and I'm not, I, Elena's sitting back there and years ago, and I've told this story before. Years ago, I was on a trip preaching somewhere, speaking somewhere. And I called home at night to talk to the kids, and I asked Teeny what she'd been doing during the day. And she said, well, I was playing with, with uh, my babies. And she named off her babies. And I said, no, wait a minute. I said, if you have babies, I said, then there's got to be a, a, a daddy. I said, is there a daddy? She goes, yes, daddy, there's a, there's a daddy. And I said this, is he a godly man? Yes, daddy, he's a godly man. Does he love the Lord? Yes. Is he a good husband? Yes. And I said, and if he were, weren't, what would I do about it? And she said, you'd shoot him, dad. I own a couple of firearms. I think I mentioned that recently, but I'm not one of these uh, one of these guys that has a whole arsenal at my house. But I know how to use them, and I would use them if I needed to. But I mean, <laughs> let me just say this. Let me just say this, young man. The way to a girl's heart, biblically, is through her daddy. Okay, if you try and find a way to a girl's heart without going through her daddy. You're going to be in big trouble. Okay? Uh, you, you say, a preacher, this has nothing to do with the message tonight. That's all right. Whose damsel is this? It's here. Okay. All right. We were talking recently, and I said, you know what? Not, not that I want to, I don't want to, I mean, I have a daughter who's actually, who she's gotten married. And by the way, I got a wonderful son-in-law. I praise God for Micah Villanova. I mean, he is the gold brick standard of son-in-law. And I, I love him, and I praise God for him. Uh, but all that to say, I think, I think it's okay if a young man who is interested in a young woman and he thinks about that first crucial step of going to her daddy, get this, before he goes any further, I think it is a healthy thing for him to be a little intimidated. And all you dads of daughters better say, amen. amen. Okay? Now, it's not like I'm going to sit there and polish my shotgun okay, while you're sitting there talking. I don't know. I might. Depends on the guy. Okay? okay, we better finish this message. All right. Putting yourself in the pathway of grace. In the field. That God in His providence has grace available. Live for others. Look for grace. Lean on the Word. And then labor in what you know to do. 
okay? Is the food that you have the grace of God? Would you agree with that? But the Apostle Paul said, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Food is grace. Okay, but if a man doesn't work, he doesn't qualify for handouts and entitlement. Okay. All right. And what I love about Ruth, she goes to the field. And you can almost sense it. Boaz asks his servant that was set over the reapers, whose damsel is this? Verse number six. And the servant that was set over the reapers answered and said, it is the Moabitish damsel that came back with Naomi out of the country of Moab. And she said, I pray you, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came, and notice this, hath continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. You, you go over to verse number 14. And Boaz said unto her at mealtime, Come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and he reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed, and left. And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not, and let fall also some of the handfuls on purpose for her, and leave them that she may glean them, and rebuke her not. Notice verse 17, So she gleaned in the field until when? Even. And beat out that she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. This girl was a worker. Okay. She was doing what she knew to do, laboring, with the exception of the little tarrying, the servant says to Boaz. And then when she was invited to eat in the tent of the laborers, at first it was her being new that caught Boaz's attention. But then it was her faithful labor that continued to help her access the grace of Boaz. As we've already mentioned, grace is not welfare, okay? But it is abundant and undeserved. I like what another author said. I'll give you this and then close with an illustration. The narrator, this is a quote, the narrator is screaming, see the hand of God at work here? The same hand that sent famine later gave food. The same hand then brought Naomi and Ruth home and guided Ruth to Boaz's field. It reminds me of Genesis chapter 24, I being in the way the Lord led me. We could have titled this message, Getting in the Way of Grace. Getting in the way of grace. Living for others. Looking for grace. Leaning on the word and laboring in what I know to do. I suppose that many of us in this room on hindsight can look back and see the providential working of God in our lives in different instances. What we look back and see on hindsight, the providence of God was arranging before it ever occurred. That's grace. But if I'm going my own way, I'm going to miss. The author of Hebrews would say, Beware lest any man fail of the grace of God. Miss it. What God has available, 
what is there. We don't want to miss it. I thought about the life of this church and how in uh, August of 2013, we got that. I, to, I enjoyed uh, a couple weeks ago telling the foundations class in the Sunday school hour some of the history of the church and how we got in the month of August, I believe it was, got that bill from our landlord, that cam fee for almost $4,000. And we recommended, let's go ahead and pay it, even though we felt it was not fair. And then I said, let's pray that God just gets us out of here. That was on a Sunday. Monday morning, I called Ricky Searcy, by the way, who now is with the Lord, and he and his good friend Mark Sullivan are loving heaven. But I called Ricky Searcy, who's lived in this county his whole life. I said, Ricky, I said, you got to help us. I said, we have got to find a piece of property and get out of this rental location. That was on Monday. Tuesday, he had a doctor's appointment. Walked into the doctor's office. As he's sitting there in the waiting room, another friend of his who was a real estate agent, Myrna Veeman, came in. And Ricky said, you're just the person I need to talk to. Now, Myrna wasn't supposed to be there. She was on vacation at the Outer Banks and got sick and came home early so she could go to her own doctor. She wasn't supposed to be there. But there was a hap that God was planning. Because a little flock, Crossroads Baptist Church, needed a piece of property to call its own and needed to get out of that rental situation. Ricky told Myrna about our need. She said, it's interesting that you mention that. One of my professors from Bible college used to say, Christians have the strangest coincidences. She said, I've just had two pieces of property uh, brought to me that I'm going to as a real estate agent represent, she said either one of them would be a good possibility. This was one of those two places. We met here, she and I did on that Wednesday. She said, I have the signs, the real estate signs to put on the street. Can I put them there? I said, can you give me till Sunday? Because this was right when a lot of land was getting snatched up with the equestrian center. And I knew it would be a shark feeding frenzy if that sign got put out there. So I said, can you give me till Sunday? And so starting Thursday and then Friday and then Saturday and then Sunday afternoon, we had the last group of folks from the church here and we had already put some things in place that allowed the men of the church to vote to make an offer on the church, on the property. And get this, the rest is history because of a hap in a doctor's office. But that pales in comparison to a little, poor, Moabite widow who was looking for grace, who was living for others, who best she knew as she grew in her knowledge of the God of the Hebrews, she was leaning on his word and had committed her life to follow him. And she was laboring in what she knew to do. And God led her to the field of the kinsman redeemer.
You and I need grace. We need it. If you're here tonight, you don't know Christ as Savior. Let me tell you something. God has an appointment already planned for you. Okay. If you've got doubts about your salvation, you maybe have been suppressing them. Get this. God's got an appointment for you, and it is the outpouring of his grace because that's how he saves people. Okay. Believer, child of God, I don't know where you are, what the burden may be, the trial may be. Let me just encourage you, be looking for grace. Lean on the word, live for others, and labor in what you know to be right to do, what's right in front of you, and God will bring to you a happening of grace. Father, thank you. For how this Old Testament book Just four chapters. Simple story as it is continues to amaze us. And really one of the reasons that it continues to amaze us is because it's an Old Testament picture to us of the grace of God available to us through our own kinsman redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, help us to be looking for grace, living for others, leaning on the word of God, and continuing to faithfully labor in the ways that we know we should. And we will intersect on a regular basis with your grace in our lives. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.